Will you pray with me? Father God, we commit uh, our time to you now as we uh, come before your word and we recognise, Lord, that there's often so many things on our minds, uh, Lord, that uh, we're considering things in the back of our minds, concerns, burdens. Lord, we just lay these before you because we believe, uh, Lord Jesus, that you have come to teach us something today that we need to hear. We know this is true because your word uh, is living and active, uh, able to cut down right to the deepest part of who we are. And so we ask that you would move uh, in our hearts today uh, to expose what you want, to reveal uh, the depth of who we are, our need for Jesus, our need for his transformative work upon our lives. But help us to be honest as we consider your word before you today. Father, I ask that as I speak, that you would anoint my lips, that uh, my words would be clear and bold as they ought to be, or that you would open a door in our hearts uh, that we might know in a deeper way the work of Jesus, and you might do it afresh amongst us. And so we commit uh, ourselves and our time to you today, and we also pray that you would have your hand upon the many other churches uh, where your word is uh, being spoken and preached today. Uh, Lord, would you make the ears of your people attentive? And Father, I also pray this morning for those who don't know you and for those who are far from you, for those who are lost, for those who need healing, for those who are astray. Would you bind up the brokenhearted? Or would you move in power to show people that you love them? Would you move in power to show people that your way is better and so they should turn away from sin and repent? And Father, we ask all of this because of and through the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I was sitting with my kids, uh, or standing with my kids at the bus stop uh, this week, and uh, I was looking at the house behind the bus stop, and an impromptu graveyard had arisen from somewhere, and there were sort of bones, uh, you know, on the, the front yard, and there was a few sort of gravestones and some sort of spooky-looking um, implements that sort of been placed around the yard. And I thought, it's that time of year again. Halloween is upon us. And, of course, when you're a child, you might just get excited about this um, because, you know, you've learnt about it through the culture as it's sort of come into Australia over the past 20 years or so. And you might think, lollies, because that's the first thing that comes to mind for kids They're going to get a really big sugar rush if they go out to all the houses and load up. Parents, on the other hand, are thinking, I just want to go to bed. That's what I'm thinking on a a Sunday uh, night when all the the kids are coming. It's sort of just as it's getting to dark. I'm like, I've put my kids to bed. I don't want to be feeding other children. I've already fed my own kids. I'm done. Just want to go to sleep. Thank you very much. But no. And what you don't want to have, and this is the thought in my head, particularly three years ago, uh, just after my baby daughter was born, because it was her birthday on uh, Friday. And uh, so it was, we had a newborn in the house, and two nights later, all these kids were knocking on our door, and we we're like, we haven't slept for like 48 hours. We don't want to give you lollies, children, knocking on our doors. Thank you very much. And so there's a little bit of dread in the hearts of people sometimes in the home thinking, oh, gee, I better be prepared because when they get to the gate, just imagine if you don't have lollies for them, what will they do? Because, of course, trick or treat is a bit of a scary proposition, isn't it? Right? They might, if you don't give them a treat, will they trick you? Anyway, I don't want to instill too much fear in everyone uh, this morning. 
So yes, we did uh, get some lollies to give out to the kids just in case they turn up uh, to the gate and we were left unprepared. It is a fascinating thing though because in uh, the first parable that Jesus tells today, he tells of being prepared. In fact, he says that there are certain things that will happen in history that when they happen, you will know that Jesus is so close to coming back, he is almost at the gates. And so we need to be utterly well prepared for his coming because of the nearness of Jesus. Utterly well prepared because Jesus is very close at the very gates. Now just to go back a little bit to the uh, Halloween story, it's interesting because um, you know Christians have varying responses to Halloween. Many of us think occult, scary, avoid it altogether. Some of us are just in the middle, don't care that much, don't really want to participate in an American holiday thing, we think it's commercialised, whatever. Others are kind of, you know, in, they'll dress up a little bit, but they won't get into this weird and spooky stuff, um, but they think it's just a bit of fun. So there's a spectrum of views on that. But it's interesting when Jesus uh, talks about um, sort of how we might respond to his nearness, there's a faithful and wise uh, servant who is supposed to respond to the nearness of Jesus, his imminent return by being well prepared and serving others. And this is a fascinating concept, again, when we think about Halloween. Because there is a church in our city, in Kernelite Gardens, who every year at Halloween, because you know, in certain suburbs in Adelaide, Halloween is actually a really big deal. There's heaps of kids that go, go around the place. Children come in from all the surrounding suburbs to go around the houses in Colonel Light Gardens to visit the homes, and the people are very generous and give out things. They all dress up. It's a bit of fun. Not so spooky as it turns out. But the, there's a local church there who uh, sets up a coffee cart for the parents, a fresh uh, you know, healthy treat, fresh fruit, um, healthy treat thing for kids, a photo booth for families as they go around. And they have about 500 children every year, minimum, come through and they get you know, some information about the Kids Club, the Sunday Church uh, program. And they've seen many people come to the church and I think even come to faith in Jesus through their investment uh, in being faithful and wise servants because of the nearness of Halloween. Fascinating. Which leads us into, I think, and that's just something I just want to tell you about because I think it's a really interesting way to handle Halloween. But it brings us into actually considering how me, we respond to the nearness of something far more important uh, than a commercialised holiday. And that is the nearness of Jesus. Now, in verses 32 to 35 in our text today, Jesus tells a really simple parable about a fig tree. He says when the, um, yeah, uh, in the text, learn this lesson, as soon as its branch becomes tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Right? It's springtime. And actually, oddly enough, we're in spring now and you will notice the fig trees in particular and all the other plants are starting to go green. They've got their new shoots coming out and you know that summer is just around the corner. Then Jesus says, so also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now there's two things we need to define. Firstly, what are these things and who is he? Well, firstly, the these things that happen before Jesus' return, we've actually already mentioned. 
Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fall of Jerusalem is something that, uh, that is, Jerusalem, the city, was conquered in 70 AD. Uh, it was leveled by the Roman army um, in 70 AD, which was uh, roughly about uh, 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. And so we know that these things that were foretold by Jesus have happened. The signs that were preceding his imminent return in this text have happened. That's why it says, verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That is, when Jesus spoke these words in 30 AD, people were alive in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed and leveled. This tells us the second thing. Who is the he? The he is Jesus. In fact, we are in a time when Jesus, according to the text, is near, at the very gates. Things have been fulfilled. Biblical prophecy has been fulfilled that Jesus is near. He's at the very gates. He hasn't yet come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, as we've seen in the previous verses, but he's near. He's at the very gates. And so this is important for us for a number of reasons. Because, and there's probably three big reasons I want to tell you about today. The first one is that Jesus is coming near, we know as we've heard the text for today, Jesus is coming near for judgment. Jesus is the God of justice and he has come to right every wrong. He has come to sort out the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, He has come to rule over his people with righteousness and that should be of great excitement to God's people and it should be a fearsome and an awesome thing to the world that God is coming near for judgment. Jesus is coming. The second thing that we uh, need to know is that Jesus has actually come near to show us wisdom. See this fascinating thing in verse 45, who is the faithful and wise servant? wanting to share with us that there is a need to get his wisdom for how to handle ourselves in this last age, these last days. We don't know how long this time is going to go for. This last period after the fall of Jerusalem, 70 AD, it's been, you know, almost 2,000 years since then. And yet Jesus says he's near, he's at the very gates when these things would happen. The third thing that we need to realise that Jesus has come near for, and this will become clearer as as we go through the text, is that Jesus has also come near for grace. Come near to show us that actually he would handle the judgement for us himself. So near for judgement, near for wisdom, near for grace. Let's start with near for judgement. Now, in our text today, um, we actually get a snapshot of what the world Uh, was like a long time ago in the days of Noah and, oddly enough, in a similar way, a snapshot of what the world is like right now. In fact, we see described for us a distracted and ignorant, self-serving and indulgent people. Distracted and ignorant, self-serving and indulgent people who have no idea and do not care that Jesus is near at the very gates. In fact, we see that uh, Jesus is coming near for judgment on the three spheres of life that we 
have. The first one is our you know, sphere of life where we eat and drink. And we see this uh, in verse 38. He says, speaking of the days of Noah, for as in those the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And so there is a sense at which people are consumed by the food they eat and the water they drink. Now, of course, that has a fairly light side on it, that sphere of life, our eating and drinking. You know, we're in a bit of a foodie culture. There are more cookbooks than you could poke a stick at these days. Like South Australia is a net producer of some of the best wine in the world. And food and drink are good, right? The, the book um, of Ecclesiastes reminds us that it's a good thing to enjoy food and drink in our culture and time. So there's nothing inherently wrong with it. But our obsession with it can actually... So we can be so obsessed on what's in front of us, literally on the table or in our glass, that we can forget about the bigger, more important things like the imminent return of Jesus. Now, that's the light side of us. Of course, food and drink have a dark side too, don't they? When almost by consuming them, they begin to consume us. Right? We give ourselves over to eating food for comfort. What happens? We gain weight, we become unhealthy. We give ourselves to alcohol for comfort, for escape. What happens? We make terrible decisions. We ruin ruin the lives of others. We waste all our money. We can actually, because of those things, begin to abuse and take advantage of others. In fact, we see this, interestingly enough, In verse 49, there is a wicked servant. What does he do? Drinks with drunkards, abuses his fellow servants and gets totally self-indulgent. And so whilst, you know, these things are good if they serve us, wine, alcohol, drink, the nice food that we have, they're good if they serve us. If we begin to serve them, they are not a good master and they begin to ruin our lives. And so Jesus is actually coming for judgment and we are totally distracted and ignorant by things that are actually consuming us rather than us consuming them. Interesting. Jesus uh, uses another um, uh, explanation for what was going on in the days of Noah before the judgment came. And he says they were marrying and giving in marriage and people just having ordinary relationships. And again, there's sort of a, a light side to that. We're, we're a bit obsessed about relationships and for many of us, it's, it's okay, and when it's in a healthy context, it's good. But when our relationships become ultimate, when it becomes the most important thing, that is, you know, our children become the most important thing, we become controlling parents. We micromanage the lives of our children. Or when we uh, think relationships are the most important thing, we put at the top of our tree of desires and uh, hopes that we might uh, find a you know, husband or a wife. And so everything else must fall into line with that and we become depressed when we don't have that. Or, worse, when we do get married and this person does not live up to what, this high standard that we have set up for them, that they must almost be our saviour in life and, and fulfil all our hopes and desires, we might seek to control and even abuse them because they're not giving us what we want. And again, we see this same thing happening with the wicked servant. What does he do with those whom he's supposed to serve? He beats them. And unfortunately, 
When people do not live up to our expectations and we give ourselves over to that, we th- our relationships become ultimate in our lives, we actually tend to con- try and control people. And a more extreme version of control is abuse. A more extreme version of abuse is violence. And it just gets worse and worse. And again, the things that are supposed to give us joy and excitement can actually control us and destroy our lives and the lives of others and the families around us. Many of us have experienced this. And some of us have actually done it ourselves. And so we realize that actually Jesus is coming for judgment, both because we're just ignoring him, but also because when we ignore God and things are out of order, we tend to hurt people. We tend to hurt ourselves. This is what the Bible says. Jesus is coming for judgment because people have abused the good things that they have given, that he has given them. They have become ultimate and not in the right order. And so therefore, uh, we have a God who is coming to set things right. And this means he has to set people right as well. So there were, there were three spheres of life that this mentions. It was the eating and drinking, which is sort of a very simple thing that we uh, all take part in, the marrying, giving and marriage. That is the relationships we have. And the third sphere of life is work. And uh, we see this described uh, in verse 40 and 41, um, the idea of working uh, in the field and work and grinding in the mill. Two so very common um, first century places of work for ordinary people. And again, on the light side, we can be distracted by work, you know, and again, work is a good thing. God gave us work even before the fall. So uh, it's good for us to work. It's good for us to work for God's glory in all that we do to serve our masters as if we're serving God, those sort of who employ us um, or who look after us in our particular roles in our workplace. It's a good thing to work. But again, when work becomes ultimate in our lives, Rather than work serving us, we begin to serve work as a master. We become workaholics. Sometimes we joke about that, you know, I'm a workaholic. But what does that really mean? It means you neglect people whom you're supposed to actually be caring for. It means you take advantage of others to climb the corporate ladder or to get ahead in your career. You cut corners because work is most important to you. And we see this same thing, interestingly enough, with this wicked servant. What, what is he supposed to do with his work? He's supposed to serve others. And yet what does he do? He begins to beat his fellow servants. He uses them to get to the top. The wicked servant takes advantage of others in his place of work. And then what does he do when he gets to the top? He uses it to self-indulge, to eat and drink with other drunkards. It's totally self-focused and self-indulgent. And if you give yourself over to career, being the ultimate thing, that sphere of life being the number one thing in your life, it will consume and destroy you and those around you. You might get to the top, actually, but you will be... Have, leave a wake of people behind you if you totally give yourself over to this. And so really, we see uh, in Jesus' explanation here of what he's coming to judge and our ignorance of him because we're distracted by 
all of these things, we find that it's actually not the things themselves that are wrong, right? Eating and drinking, getting married, being in relationships of various kinds, working are not bad. But when they take the place of God, they distract us from God. It's like, uh, can you imagine the creation of a shadow? If I stand between, if something stands between me and a light source, it creates a shadow. And so you can't fully see the light because you're in the shadow. In the same way, these things create a barrier between us and the light of God when they become ultimate. And so we cannot see actually very well because the darkness tends to grow and increase as these things grow and increase in our lives. And so we, then we are ignorant of the return of Jesus. And so Jesus is telling us these things so that we might be aware. It says, says in the text here, you must be ready. It says, therefore, stay awake. You do not know when Jesus is coming. He could come at any time. And yet we are ignorant of his return as he comes for judgment. And so those that have given themselves over to these things, either ignoring him or giving themselves over to self-indulgence and self-serving and abuse of others, Jesus will come in judgment for them. This is where we get one of the scariest verses in the New Testament. It says in verse 50 and 51, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is a... Um, it's interesting, actually. People have described, said, uh, the metaphors um, in uh, the text, you know, and, and the, the way that it's explained, are explained in such a way uh, that actually the real thing is worse than what it explains. So we find that actually true separation from God, which is the description here of what it is, is so bad, mere words can only give us so much of how terrible it truly is. And yet it is so interesting because in many ways people have just chosen this path for themselves. You know, Jesus explains it. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You know, in the days of Noah, and if we went back to um, Genesis chapter 6, we'd see the days of Noah, no one cared. They were just getting increasingly evil. They totally ignored God. So God came and swept them away in judgment. You know, the fascinating thing uh, in this text, and we, we often tend to think um, and sort of get a, a sort of proof text for the rapture here, but I actually don't think that's what it's talking about. Uh, because we see that uh, in verse 39, the unaware, they were all unaware until the flood came and swept them all away because the people who were supposed to be saved were already on the boat. Right? But then we see that in verse 40, the parallel text in verse 41, there are people still out in the field. And those that are taken away are actually taken away, the text would say, from its context, for judgment. And so Jesus is going to come and return for judgment for people who have ignored, rebelled and done evil against him and they will have no idea. It would be as if there were two people and one was swept away by the coming tide of God's 
judgment. Now, the big question, of course, for us, because, because like, the idea of hell, God's judgment, can make us pretty uncomfortable. Um, the big question, of course, is, is God unjust? Is Jesus unjust for coming in judgment? Well, uh, J.I. Packer, a theologian, explains it this way. He says, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshipping Him, or to be without God forever, forever worshipping themselves. C.S. Lewis uh, puts it in a beautiful but disturbing way. He says, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, and I would include self-indulgence, abuse and violence. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticise it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticise the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Do you notice the descending order of happens when people are, you know, enjoying life, the, the good food, the good drink, marrying and giving in marriage, working out in the field, and then the wicked servant, which is actually what we become as we give ourselves over to these things, takes it to its nth degree. We just get more and worse of what we've already desired when we ignore God and when Jesus comes for judgment. That is the reality. And it is sad, but it is true. So we've seen quite confrontingly that Jesus has come near for judgment. But we also see that Jesus has come near for wisdom. There's this incredible invitation and a question for us in verse 45. It says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over the household? to give them food at the proper time. Is there someone who will be so ready for God's judgment, someone who will actually serve God's people well, will serve the nations of the earth well, who will be faithful and wise? Now, we might think hard to ourselves at this point, and go, maybe there's a few good people around. And then we might think to ourselves, maybe I could be that sort of good person. But actually, you know what? There is one person. There is one person who lived up to that, and it is Jesus. Jesus is the faithful and wise servant. Jesus is the one who actually did what we were supposed to. You know, Jesus gave us all these good things as, as the creator God in our lives, you know, the food and drink, the relationships, the work, and we haven't used them very well or we ignore him and worship them. And yet, Jesus came and he did none of that. He came to serve us. He faithfully stewarded everything. Jesus is and was what we were supposed to do but could never achieve. Jesus is the faithful and wise servant. He is not self-indulgent or abusive. He uses what he has, like the servant does there, to provide for others. He gives them food at the proper time. Jesus provides for people at the proper time. 
Jesus is the perfect example and his judgments are always true. And I want to illustrate uh, this for you from Star Wars. So in the Star Wars movie, uh, A New Hope, uh, at the beginning of the movie, you'll find that uh, Princess Leia is having some uh, interaction with a little robot called R2-D2. And uh, there's this projector sort of um, vision that is played and uh, Princess uh, Leia uh, speaks uh, in this recording and she says, Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, my only hope. And so Obi-Wan Kenobi is some uh, masterful Jedi, it turns out, uh, who has special powers, and he is the one who they think will be able to save them from the evil forces of the galactic uh, superpower. And so uh, they go looking for this Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi is supposed to have the old wisdom of someone who might even give his own life for the sake of others rather than be like his enemy, Darth Vader, who takes the lives of others for his own glory and power. And so as the movie progresses, A New Hope, uh, actually these two opposing forces, Darth Vader, who represents the evil, and Obi-Wan Kenobi, who represents the good, actually face off one another in a battle. And... uh, Darth Vader is this personification of evil. We see them sort of flash with the Darth Vader with the red lightsaber and Obi-Wan Kenobi with the blue lightsaber representing good and evil. And just as their final blows happen, Obi-Wan says these striking words to Darth Vader. He says, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. But of course, there's this anticlimax after that because then Darth Vader does strike Obi-Wan Kenobi down and nothing happens. And everyone's like, oh, there's a conundrum. Did Obi-Wan Kenobi mean what he said? Well, turns out some people have tried to solve this in the wonderful world of the internet, and Ed999 has this response to this question. He says, A Jedi adherent of the dark side who perishes is truly dead. He cannot survive as a part of the fourth. Hence, Vader, having adopted the dark side, has no knowledge that a Jedi was capable of surviving beyond death. This is why Kenobi warns him that he has a surprise coming if he strikes Kenobi down. Right? We learn later in Revenge of the Sith that the Emperor has imbued Vader with awesome powers by courtesy of the dark side. It gives tremendous power in life, but there is no existence after death. Vader has learned about the dark side from the Emperor, so they are both ignorant of the truth about the Force. Turns out that Ed 999 might have something on this. And so likewise, we have little hope ourselves under the righteous judgment of God. In fact, similar to Vader, when you ignore him, when you say, God, I don't care. I give myself to these other things. When you don't act as if he's near at the very gates with wisdom that he is so close he could enter at any time, there is already spiritual death growing in our lives. Our ignorance of Jesus' imminent return breeds increasing levels of sin in our world. Look at the place. Look at the world. It doesn't take long to see this. 
And like Vader, if we give ourselves over to this ignorance and self-serving, we give ourselves over to death. And we give ourselves over to death without hope. So, we need someone who, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, will face our evil for us, not self-serving but willing to sacrifice self to save us. Someone who is not corrupted by the evil of the world. Someone who is able to pass beyond the grave but not just be a martyr and example, as Obi-Wan Kenobi was, but more than that, change the hearts of his people and rise bodily and physically from the dead. And we do have someone like this. And his name is Jesus. And he is the faithful and wise servant that we need. And so as Jesus is at the gates, we need to realise that we need to see his wisdom. We cannot do this on our own. True wisdom tells us we need more than just an example. We can't just see Jesus' example of living the perfect life and strive for that because you know what? We won't achieve it. We need someone who will save us and change us. We need someone uncorruptible someone who will give us hope beyond death. So then we need to go near. We need to realise that Jesus is near for judgment. We need to realise Jesus is near for wisdom. And thirdly and finally, we need to realise that Jesus is near for grace. Now there's this great reversal in our text today. It says, verse 37, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In the days of Noah, um, we read this from Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 and 6. This is what it says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is what happens when you ignore God and serve self. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. I want you to notice a few things. The evil of man is our choice. We're the ones that choose to serve ourselves. We're the ones that want to give ourselves everything we want. And if we give ourselves over to that, we will take advantage and abuse others. And yet, we also see here that it grieves God to his heart. This reveals God not just as lawgiver and us as lawbreaker, but him as life giver and us as heartbreakers. God loves us. His heart was broken. He didn't want to pour out judgment on a world, but they'd chosen it. They'd chosen rejection of him. If he let them go, they would have destroyed themselves and made things ten times worse. And so we see this great reversal in Jesus. Because rather than the judgment of God falling upon the whole world, and God saving one man and his family, the reverse happens with Jesus. The judgment for the whole world falls on Jesus so that he might save a whole people to become his family. You see, Jesus takes our sin very personally. It is not just law-breaking, but against him. It grieves his heart 
and yet he was willing to have his own heart broken by the weight of the sin of the world in the most tremendous and terrible manner on the cross by taking it all for us so that we would not have to. Jesus literally on the cross took hell for us. The description of hell you see in verse 51 is what happened to Jesus. He was in the place of hypocrites. He was cut to pieces. He was there where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth as the Father turned away from him. He bore the weight of it. And there was only one man in the world who had the strength to carry that sort of thing, and that was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so we return then to the one who is at the very gates. There are, three exhort- there are two exhortations and one implicit one for us. The first is to stay awake because you do not know the hour that the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. The other one is be ready because you do not know when Jesus is coming. And the other question is who will be faithful and who will be wise? Well, I want you to notice that there and we've already mentioned this, that Jesus is the faithful and wise servant who was put over the household as an example for the other members of the household. He's the one that gives them their food at the proper time. He does what is right and he will have a great reward on the last day and he will share that reward with us. And so the question really then is if Jesus is the true faithful and wise servant, then actually we need something from him before we can serve him, we need spiritual food. We need to be changed by what Jesus has done. And actually, it will only be once you begin to take so seriously that your sin doesn't just break the law, because that is such a judicial relationship, which is true, but it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is that your sin breaks the heart of God, and my sin breaks the heart of God. And someone's heart is only broken when they truly love another person. And so it is only when we see the reality that he loves us so much that he would avert his wrath for us and put it on him, his very self, to save us, that we will be changed people. It's only when what Jesus has done becomes our spiritual food that we can be a faithful and wise servant not abusing others. In fact, it's only when what Jesus has done really takes root in our hearts that our food and drink will no longer rule us. Have you struggled to overcome your relationship with food and alcohol? I tell you, unless you do it in the strength of Jesus, something else will rule your heart. If you get over that, something else will come in. But unless Jesus comes in, who is the ultimate one, who you realize that everything is satisfied in him, then he will be enough for you. If your relationships are out of order, that is, to your parents, to your children, to your husband, to your wife, to yourself, to those who you would like to have in your life, you need Jesus in the center of your heart to save you from yourself. 
to save you from continuing down this path, to grant you forgiveness for things you can't forgive yourself for, Jesus will wipe the slate clean if you return to him. And he will give you the strength to ask forgiveness of others. If you've been hurt and abused by others in various ways, and you take that on as your self-identity, Jesus can free you from that identity because he will take you on as his child and he will never leave you nor forsake you. If your work has begun to rule your life or your ambition to get ahead, to be number one, has begun to rule your life, you need Jesus because it will rule you. Rather than your work serving others and serving you, you will serve it. You do not want to get to the end of your life and say, I was a workaholic and I ignored my family. I was a workaholic and I have nothing left to show for it. I was a workaholic and I have all these things and yet they will not pass with me through the grave. It is not worth it. Jesus taught about this many times. But if you take the reality of what Jesus has done into your heart, then you can serve others with your work and not tread on others in your way and you will follow his example because it has changed you from the inside out. And so with those words of application, let me pray and invite the band back up. Father God, we thank you uh, that you have given us such a strong example in Jesus, our faithful and wise servant. But Lord, we, we cannot achieve that on our own. We need to be changed by you. We thank you that you came near to show us your grace, that you would take the judgment rather than everyone experiencing it themselves. Lord, you took the cross when we should have. And so we praise you for that change and renew us in the reality of this today, that we might be your people, live for you, be changed by you, and be ready for your imminent return. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.